This is part three of three of the Eiffel Tower series. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, you should check them out to see the struggles to get the tower to where we are now. Gustav Eiffel and his company are still grinding away on the tower, but they now need to have the method of bringing tourists from the ground to the top of the tower upgraded. Stairs and ladders just won't do. Workmen are still rushing to get the tower completed by the upcoming Exposition Universale, opening March 31st, 1889. The three platforms need to be completed and shops and amenities added, while the apex of the tower has to be reached. There is a rush against time to get the project completed, with many tasks still left to finish. Let's jump back into the story. Hello, and welcome to the Spark History Show, where we bring history to light. Take a dive with us into history and hear the real accounts of the stories of the past as they actually unfolded. Explore with us as we shine some light on the amazing events that shaped our world into what we have today. We are going to recreate the stories of the past to better understand the struggles and triumphs during the most epic moments in history. This is the Spark History Show. Let us begin the journey. When the jobs were outsourced for the elevator construction, there were a few bids on the different runs that would be required. Two French firms were awarded contracts to build elevators. Rue, Combalizer, and Le Pop won the bid to complete the elevators in the east and west legs of the tower connecting to the first platform. The other French company, Edu, would build the elevators from the second platform to the top, which would be a vertical path rather than have to deal with an angled grade as was necessary on the other elevator runs. There was one problem with all of this. There were no French elevator companies that bid on building the elevator line from the first platform to the second platform. This particular run was the hardest, as it had the sharpest angle. This is where we see the old economic idea of trade protectionism come in. It turns out there was a bid on the tough middle elevator run of the tower, but it turns out it was from a <gasps> American company. The only company to submit a plan to build an elevator that solved the architectural puzzle for the middle run was Otis Elevator Company from the United States. The charter that Eiffel had received from the government to build the tower had stipulated that only French companies were to be used in the construction. The American Otis Company had submitted their proposal through their Paris branch in order to sneak in a bid on the monument. This wouldn't do. The initial bid that Otis had placed to complete the elevator with a total cost of $22,500 was rejected, and a new bidding process was started to take new proposals. Once again, at the time the contest ended, there were no bids for the middle-run elevator by any French companies. In the end, the government of Paris made a modification to the agreement to allow the American company to win the contract for the elevator between the first and second platforms. Otis Elevator Company's founder, Elisha Otis, 
had been pretty confident in his bid on the project. His design of an elevator that would be hoisted from above by cables and including a novel security feature of emergency brake pads had been three years in the making. He knew that he would be the best option for Eiffel for the task at hand. There were several disputes between Eiffel and Otis during the construction. Threats were made by Eiffel that he would not pay for the device if it was not fully operational by set dates. But then he would force a large number of modifications to the design that would set the elevator construction back. There were also concerns over safety, as in Europe the idea of elevators that were only held in the air from cables above was frightening. What if the cable failed? Would everyone go plunging to their death? In the other elevators at the time, there would be support under the elevator that would be the mechanism to both increase its height and also support the weight of the cabin so that it could not fall. Once the elevator was in place, to test this brake system that Otis seemed to think was foolproof, Eiffel had the cabin of the elevator pulled to a great height by rope instead of metal cable. He then sliced away at the rope to see if the elevator would go crashing down to the ground. Instead, as Otis had anticipated, the emergency brake system automatically engaged when the speed hit a dangerous threshold and halted the downward fall of the elevator. The safety test was passed. Being lifted from above by cables gave the Otis elevators an advantage over the others on the tower in that they were faster and a lot less noisy. The Otis design could raise 40 passengers at 400 feet per minute versus the other elevator's speed of 200 feet per minute. It was literally twice as fast. In the end, the Otis elevator was supposed to be built in time for May when the exposition started. But because of the delays caused by design changes during construction and the feud between Otis and Eiffel, the elevator was not fully functional until mid-June. The novel elevator design still managed to become an outright exhibit at the fair, showcasing the cutting-edge elevator technology of the time. It also helped to alleviate congestion on the tower with the increased speed it was able to transit between platforms. With all of the final elevators being completed, a tourist could hop on at the bottom of the tower and get to the top at 984 feet in 7 minutes. 1,800 visitors an hour could be raised to the first platform. 882 an hour could go to the second platform. And 445 an hour could go to the top. Although the tourists would have to disembark during the travel up the tower to ride on separate elevators, this also offered them some time to enjoy the different view and surroundings on each level. When going to the top, up to 100 passengers would hop on the rude double-decker elevators at the bottom of the tower. They would then disembark, and 40 at a time would jump on the Otis elevators on the first platform. Then they would funnel out and proceed onto the Edu elevators on the second platform and quantities of 65 people at a time would head to the top. Although it seemed like a roundabout process, it got the job done. And most importantly, it did it in a safe manner. 
Take, for example, the strength of the pistons supporting the Edu elevators were rated for 43 times the maximum weight that could be in the elevators at one time. On top of that, they even later installed an emergency braking system to the Edu elevators as well. You know, just in case. The tower was nearing completion. The first platform continued to have amenities added. Tourists would be able to stop at one of the four restaurants to enjoy a meal overlooking the landscape of the city. There were two French restaurants, a Russian, and an Anglo-American restaurant installed. The sides of the first platform had the arches that we had discussed along the sides called decorative arcades. A 930-foot-long and 9-foot-wide promenade area went around the outside of the level. This was the main area where tourists could meander about and grab a meal or some souvenirs. Constructed on the second platform was a bar and pastry shop. A pastry shop because, you know, it's France. There was also a printing machine established to create a daily print of the exposition's activities that would be occurring throughout the course of the day. On the third platform, which was octagonal in shape, the one on the highest point of the tower, there was an observation deck enclosed in glass to protect viewers from the high winds at that height. There was also a small spiral staircase on this level that led up to Eiffel's own private apartment. Eiffel also had some rooms for scientific experiments established in his private area. On the outside edge of this top platform was an interesting feature. There were metal tracks placed around the platform to allow two high-powered spotlights to be directed to any point in the city within seven miles. Want to show off the night view of Notre Dame Cathedral or the Arc de Triomphe to everyone in the tower? How about having a spotlight shine down a giant ray of light on the location to allow the viewers on the tower to take in the view and find its exact location in the sprawl of the city? At the very tip of the tower, a special beacon was placed. Inside the beacon was a giant electric lamp. Around the lamp were specially tinted prisms that would change the light between the colors red, white, and blue every 90 seconds. The colors of the French flag that were shown from this beacon could be seen up to 120 miles in the distance. Adding to the final touches, there was also a coat of paint applied to the iron structure to protect it from the weather. The color that was used was known as Barbados Bronze, which was a mix between a light brown and red. The architects also couldn't miss a chance to slip in another architectural gimmick in this part of the tower, just like when they added the arches, which were non-weight-bearing and more for looks. Here, the lower parts of the tower were painted a dark shade of the Barbados bronze, and then the color gradually grew lighter as it went up the tower to the top. This was an architectural trick to create the illusion of greater height. Another way to make the tower look more impressive to its audience at the World's Fair. The Eiffel Tower was completed by the end of March 1889. As the tower was being finished, Eiffel put out remarks about its inherent value to France. It irked Eiffel 
that some in the press and other critics had attacked the idea of the tower, stating that it was an eyesore and was a useless structure that wasted precious resources in its construction. Rebutting these comments, Eiffel provided a full list of additional side benefits of the tower besides the inherent engineering feat in its construction and being an amazing entranceway into the World's Fair. The tower was now the tallest structure in the world. It was 300 meters or 984 feet high. It is usually rounded up to 1,000 feet when referenced in the media. Here are the main points that Eiffel made in defense of the grand structure. The observation post above the city of Paris could lend the state a hand in any war or conflict. Enemy troop movements could be seen up to 45 miles away from the tower. If you are at ground level looking out over flat land, you can see only about 3 miles out before the horizon takes the rest of the land out of view. If you're on top a structure, say 100 feet up, you could see out 12 miles. Being able to see out 45 miles from the top of the tower definitely gave you an advantage over the enemy. This helped build a strategic case for the tower, although over time other technologies lowered this relevance. Another of Eiffel's ideas was that the height of the tower could be used for experiments to push forward scientific achievement. Studies could be done on gravity and air resistance by dropping items from great heights from the tower. Since the tower was above the morning mist that sometimes blankets the city, meteorological observations could be made through the clear sky. Studies of the chemical composition of the air at the tower could also be done, as well as record electrical charges. There was also a lightning rod on the tower that would take charge into the nearby river so as to not endanger anyone on the tower at the time. What would later become very important during wars was its role as a radio tower, with the most commanding point in the area from which to beam out radio signals. But my favorite idea was that on Eiffel Tower, a large-scale pendulum could be created that could help to measure the way the Earth rotates. An experiment to measure the Earth's rotation was first done by Leon Foucault in 1851, where a large pendulum was created by placing a weight suspended from a cable mounted high above. Since the Eiffel Tower was now the tallest structure in the world, it would be here where the largest possible pendulum could be built to replicate the experiment. When the pendulum swung back and forth, it would leave a mark where it slightly grazed the ground or sand below it. From these marks, it can be seen that the pendulum, which keeps moving in the same plane, swinging back and forth, actually makes lines in the sand or ground underneath it at different angles. Although the pendulum moves in the same plane, the earth underneath it rotates, and this is what causes the marks in the ground to be in different spots as the pendulum continues to swing. This can actually be used to measure the rotation of the Earth. I always just thought that this was a, an interesting experiment. And if in today's time you're in the Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles, California, you can see their own version of this experiment, which has the pendulum dangling from the ceiling in the center of the building.
In the end, the city of Paris eventually fell in love with their new landmark. And today, it is one of the most recognizable structures in the world. We also should look at the architectural feat that Eiffel and his company have been able to accomplish here. The tallest structure in the world was built. It was built on time for the World Exposition in Paris and met the criteria outlined in the government contract. Eiffel was also able to have the tower built for a total cost of $1,505,675.90 when the contract had asked for the construction to be $1.6 million. Eiffel came in under the initial cost projected for the construction. In francs, the total cost was 7,799,401.31. And if you translate that cost into today's dollars, it comes out to roughly $40 million. How many great government slash private sector projects today are completed on time and under budget? It took a total of two years, two months, and five days to complete the largest structure in the world at the time, the Eiffel Tower. There was also a high level of safety working for Eiffel's company. Workplace injuries and deaths were limited. Actually, on a bit of a technicality, no one was killed during the construction. I say a technicality because one courageous, I would presume, wannabe rock climber, thought that he could impress his girlfriend by performing a risky act. Rumor has it that after the working hours were over, and that is the key technicality, it was outside of working hours, a man thought he could climb a bit around the first platform of the structure to show off for his girlfriend below. Turns out, he was not as good a climber as he thought, and he fell down and went splat. Only one death for such a grand structure was unheard of in this time period in 1889. The Brooklyn Bridge, for example, had 20 fatalities on the job during its construction, ending in 1883. In 1931, the Empire State Building had 14 people that died on the job. And lastly, going to the current largest structure of today, with all of our safety and technological progress since the 1800s, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai had three workers that died during the construction. The context of these other projects shows how well the planning and attention to safety with Eiffel's company saved lives. Oh, and one word of advice on the current tallest building? If you're going to the Burj Khalifa to see the view, make sure you go to the Sky Lounge and not just the lower level observation deck. The very top spot is a whopping 555 meters high. That's 1,820.87 feet above the ground. The view from the at the top lounge is like nothing else you can see from a man-made structure. Unlike the lower observation deck, which feels a little bit higher than the Empire State Building. The Paris Exposition opened on May 6th, 1889. The finishing touches were being made on the Eiffel Tower, and 10 minutes before 12 a.m. on May 15th, the tower was opened for general public use. As we discussed before, 
There were delays with some of the elevators, and they were not fully functional on the original opening day. Even though they would have to put in some sweat to climb the steps, throngs of people lined up to ascend the tower. There was a fee of 40 cents to go to the first platform and a fee of 60 cents to get to the second platform. In one week, about 47,000 visitors purchased tickets. The first platform ticket sales were twice as numerous as the more expensive trip to the second platform. By June 16th, the elevators were operational and tickets to the top, that is the third platform, went on sale for $1 each. As the fair progressed, the tower began to steal the show and became the hottest tourist destination at the exposition. The maximum limit of pedestrians that could be on the tower at once was 10,000, but that was if every area was full to the brink. A steady flow of tourists was constantly moving up, down, and about the tower as hour-long lines started to develop below with those anxious to see the spectacular view of the City of Light from this new monument. In total ticket sales, the tower generated $1,142,834.70 in revenue and had 1,968,287 travelers admire the view from high above the city. In terms of how much money came in, that means it made 76% of the original building cost back just from revenue from the exposition. Eiffel was able to pay back the bondholders within the first year. Never mind that it is still standing and bringing in revenue every day now, over a hundred years later. The people of the city and of the world learned to love the tower, and it became one of the greatest landmarks of the city. The protests and belief that it should be knocked down after the fair and sold for scrap dissipated. After the 20-year contract term was up, the city was happy to leave it in place. The tower became a symbol for the strength and ingenuity of France, just as its original creators had envisioned. The Exposition of 1889 turned into the largest exposition that had ever occurred to that date. People took boats across oceans, trains on land, and rode on horseback to travel the hundreds or thousands of miles to see the exposition. There were even two Austrians that in a small wager made the trip to France's capital city for the exposition by having one lay in a wheelbarrow while the other pushed it, taking turns either pushing the wheelbarrow or resting in it. The total ticket sales for the fair totaled over 32 million. 32 million people went to this fair. That brought in gross proceeds of over 49,500,000 francs. The exposition had originally been scheduled to close on October 31st, but because of its popularity, it actually stayed open another week to fulfill demand. The final close date was November 6th, when the exhibit started demolition. But there was one exhibit that would stay for much longer than the term of the fair. Our beloved Eiffel Tower. 
The tower has survived to today through wars and changing governments in France. There was an interesting story about this in World War II. France had been occupied by the Germans in World War II on June 14, 1940. To prevent the Nazis from utilizing the tower, the French radio operators in the tower destroyed all of the radio equipment and also severely damaged the elevators to take them out of service. When the leader of the Nazis, Adolf Hitler, came to occupied Paris, he wanted to take propaganda pictures from the top of the tower. Too bad for him, since the elevators were out, that involved climbing 1,670 steps of the tower. Hitler flat out refused to be forced to take the stairs instead of the elevator, and in so doing, was unable to go to the top of the monument. The only pictures you will see of Hitler and the Eiffel Tower are those where he is on the ground with the Eiffel Tower in the background. He never went to the top, denied access by the Frenchman who took the initiative to disable the elevators before the occupation. During the German occupation, there was a threat that the Germans would dismantle or destroy the tower. There were actually plans for it to be broken down and sold as scrap in 1942. Because it was such a mighty symbol in French culture, the Germans ended up avoiding the plan to prevent what they expected would have been riots and an uprising if they destroyed the important landmark. Since its creation until today, over 250 million people have visited the Eiffel Tower celebrities, dignitaries, royalty, and your everyday tourists have all been able to take in this amazing structure. Looking back at the vision that Eiffel had for his tower, I think it is safe to say that it has surpassed even his highest expectations. The tower today is the most visited monument in the world that has an entrance fee. Eiffel completed many projects in his lifetime, both before and after the tower, but he stated that the tower was his prized achievement. Eiffel would go on to create over 31 book or monographs in the field of engineering or regarding his scientific experiments. True to his initial vision, he turned the Eiffel Tower into a venue for scientific experiments. He ensured that a precise weather measuring system was built on the tower. The devices differed from other similar projects in that they didn't rely on estimates from the operators of the devices, but instead used exact scientific measurements. It was also protected from the elements, but still had airflow to perform the necessary tasks. The tower also became a major broadcasting point for radio signals, and then when the tower entered a more modern era, around 1953, television signals were added as well. In 1911, the tower was even used to broadcast Greenwich Meridian Time over radio waves to help ships at sea navigate with the help of the fixed signal. It was the radio tower that was added in later years that made the height of the tower reach 1,063 feet tall, or 324 meters, compared to its original height of 984 feet, or 300 meters, without the radio tower. 
Eiffel had a long life and lived to the age of 91, passing peacefully in his home in 1923, 34 years after the Eiffel Tower was constructed. The tower itself outlasted him and is still available to visit today. Around 7 million people from all parts of the world currently visit the tower every year, and a total of over 250 million people have visited the structure since its creation. A modern Italian study showed that the tower is the most valuable monument in Europe, adding about $556 billion in economic value to France's economy each year. The next highest was the Colosseum in Rome at $117 billion. There is also a funny story about the Eiffel Tower. During the Eiffel Tower's life, it also managed to be sold to be broken down for scrap. Not once, but twice. But naturally, this was no legitimate deal, as the tower is still standing. An American con man who made a living at swindling people from their money set up a scheme to sell the Eiffel Tower for scrap after reading a Paris newspaper indicating the tower was in bad disrepair in 1925. Victor Lustig, as he was called along with his 47 aliases, had a counterfeiter provide him with papers indicating he was a government official of Paris. From there, he invited the leading scrap dealers of the time to a fancy hotel to wine and dine them, and then let loose his report that the Grand Eiffel Tower had fallen into such disrepair that it was decided that it would be scrapped. The dealers jumped at the opportunity to bid on such a large mass of iron scrap that could be collected at a single time. Lustig announced that the dealer André Poisson had won the bidding, but taking him aside privately, he gently pushed him, stating there was one thing holding him back from the completion of the bid. Lustig claimed that he was a, a servant of the people, but whining and dining guests in fancy hotels and dressing in a nice suit for the occasion had left him a bit short of the penny. Indicating that it would be nice if Andre could help him out, he effectively coerced a bribe out of him. With the money in his pockets, he then fled to Austria. After Lustig noticed that there was no news about his scam in the newspapers, he realized that Andre may have been too embarrassed to report him after falling victim to the scam. Seeing another opportunity, he traveled back to Paris six months later and performed the same scam with another host of scrap dealers, in total auctioning off the tower for scrap twice. This time, it was reported to the police, and Victor Lustig ended up fleeing back to America to avoid imprisonment. Now that we went through this journey to see the story of how the Eiffel Tower was built, I hope you will enjoy more meaning if you have the chance to set foot on the tower yourself. For those of you that have already been there, I hope this journey through time helped to show all of the effort and dedication and passion that went into building the monument that is as grand today as it was back when it was first opened in 1889. Even if you have no plans to visit the monument, the stories behind its creation 
are pretty amazing. I don't know about you, but I love learning about projects like these where we see the very beliefs of human capability challenged and great feats of achievements are able to be made by having the necessary drive and skill to make it happen, to push through and triumph. And that, that brings us to the conclusion of the story of the Eiffel Tower. Thank you everyone for listening and have a great day. That concludes our Eiffel Tower series. If you enjoyed the show and want to help us out, please consider making a contribution at our website, sparkhistory.com forward slash support to help us keep the show running and make more great series. If you want to see visuals of the tower in construction and when it was completed, we also have them up on the site, as well as links to shows on other topics of history that you might find interesting. To catch new episodes as they are released, subscribe to the show on your podcast directory such as iTunes, or follow us on Twitter at Spark History. Your feedback on the content of our show in a written review on iTunes would be much appreciated. Alright everyone, thank you for listening, and until next time, Adiós.